0: This is the word of God. Now, when he heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee, and leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea, in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the, Galilee, of the Gentiles. The people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death on them a light has dawned from that time Jesus began to preach saying repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand while walking by the sea of Galilee he saw two brothers Simon who's called Peter and Andrew his brother casting a net into the sea for they were fishermen and he said to them follow me and I will make you fishers of men immediately they left their nets and followed him And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets, and he called them. Immediately, they left the boat and their father and followed him. And he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought him all the sick, Those afflicted with various diseases and pains. Those oppressed by demons, epileptics and paralytics. And he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis. And from Jerusalem and Judea. And from beyond the Jordan. This is God's word. You may be seated. Father, as we begin to look at this Scripture that you have given to us, that you have spoken through your Spirit, through Matthew to us. We ask you to give us understanding this morning. That as we look to these stories, that for for some of us are familiar, for some of us we're reading for the very first time. Would you help us to see Jesus more clearly? for who he is, for how you would have him understood by us. and Because we know that that's only possible through your spirit giving us understanding, would you open up our ears by your spirit, open up our blind eyes, and open up our cold hearts so that we can receive your word with gladness. In Jesus' name, amen. When we left off from Matthew's gospel last week, Jesus had undergone his temptation in the desert, if you'll remember. And he had fully accepted his role as the servant of the Lord, the new Adam. The the true and faithful fulfillment of who Israel was supposed to be remember he's somewhere down in Judea I don't have a map for you but if you have your Bible map it's in the back of your Bible he's he's down in Judea in the wilderness in the southern part of, of that area and he's there and Jesus finds out that John the Baptist has been arrested by Herod this is a new Herod not the Herod that died 25 years before this we'll learn later what happened but here's the gist of it Herod is a womanizer, much like his father, and he's taken his brother's wife as his own wife. And John reveals to us that he's just not any Baptist. He's a Southern Baptist. And he says to Herod, that ain't right. (laughs) And the new wife, who only went for Herod because of his power, she gets upset that John the Southern Baptist is going to spoil her plans... So she has Herod arrest John. And you'll have to wait till chapter 14 of Matthew's gospel to see what happens to John. But it's not pretty. Jesus hears about this arrest, and he's down in Judea, and he leaves Judea, and he heads up to Galilee, which is where he's from, back where his family lives. And he passes through Nazareth, but rather than staying in Nazareth, where he grew up, he only stops there briefly, and then he heads further north, up closer to the sea he decides to move closer to the sea, to this fishing village called Capernaum. This is where Jesus is going to begin his ministry. This is where we begin to see him preach. Now, Matthew, as many of you who have been here have been pretty keen to listen to, he's he's been telling us the significance of places, hasn't he? Every, every place name he gives us, he gives us significance. Why this place? And then he tells you it's a fulfillment. He says that Jesus moves to Capernaum because he was going to fulfill what was said in Isaiah. He says that he went such and such place because he was the Christ. He says he went to this place because he was the fulfillment of Israel. He, re, he went there because that's where the promised king of David would be born. And this move isn't any different for Matthew. And he explains it the same way that he's been explaining every other movement. We should expect, by now, to see that Jesus is tracing footsteps of promises that were given to Israel. Capernaum happens to be in the old territory of Naphtali. Which, along with Zebulun, this is not trivia, most of us Regularly exercise. The, this is the, the far north of the old kingdom of Israel. These two tribes shared the north end of the old, the old northern kingdom, and this is where they were. Those two names are the names of two of the sons of Jacob, which means they are two of the original twelve tribes of Israel. Remember, remember Matthew's writing this gospel for us, and he's got his scroll of Isaiah open. And he's thinking back to when Jesus moved to Capernaum. And led along by the Spirit, he, he's remembering that Capernaum, that's, that's the region that was supposed to be blessed by God after the return from the exile. And I imagine that it's at this point that Matthew realized this is why Jesus moved to Capernaum. This is why he left Nazareth and went to Capernaum because he was fulfilling a prophecy and, and Matthew sees this prophecy in Isaiah 9. Remember, he's got Isaiah open. Isaiah chapter 9, verses 2 and 3 are what we see here quoted in our text this morning. In Matthew four, fifteen, and 16. He says, The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region in shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. Now, if you read the rest of Isaiah 9, you'll find out that this region, this northernmost part of the old northern kingdom, was the first to come under God's judgment. When, when the Assyrian king invaded The northern kingdom, all of this region where Jesus has gone to, that region was conquered first. And these are the first people to be taken from the land, to be exiled out of the promised land into Assyria. Now Matthew is saying to us, quoting Isaiah, though these were the first people to know God's judgment, these are the first to see the light, to see the light of his mercy towards them. They're the first ones to receive the Christ. They're the first to experience the return from the spiritual exile that they have been in, the return that God had promised to them. They get to know the presence of God with them. Now, this chapter of Isaiah, Isaiah 9, many of you will remember from Christmas time, is where we get verses 6 and 7. This is is a promise. This is a promise of the coming Christ, isn't it? Isaiah chapter 9. And Jesus is saying, this is going to be fulfilled in me. And I'm going to show you that. And I'm going to move to Capernaum. Because this is where the beginning of this promise starts. I think the most encouraging thing that I have seen over and over again is we've been studying Matthew together and we've barely gotten into it but already we have seen over and over and over again the faithfulness of God. Isn't it an encouragement to read this and say God was faithful. God was faithful to his promise. He was faithful to his word. He did what he said he would do. Some of us, for the 50th time, are about to make New Year's resolutions this week. Resolutions that will be broken by Friday. We have trouble being, being faithful to our own words, to ourselves. But God is faithful to his promises to his people. I'd like to suggest a New Year's resolution for all of us together. And you don't have to eat more kale, You don't have to go to the gym. Instead, let us do something that will help in every area of our life. Just this one thing. Remind yourself every day of the faithfulness of God. Look and see how God has kept you in the faith when every bit of you was swallowed up with doubt. Look and see how God has made the truth of the gospel bear fruit in your life. And look at the fruit and praise him. See how God is being faithful to transform you from who you were into the image of Christ. Day by day. Let's remind ourselves of God's faithfulness every day in the coming year, can we? God was faithful to this this little territory in the northern kingdom that was once held in contempt, under judgment by him. But he didn't forget his promise that they'd be the first to hear the good news of his coming kingdom. It's Jesus that fulfills that promise. So as we get more into our our text, this this week 17 is really where it begins. So in your notes you'll see three sections. The message, the call, and the ministry. We see in verse 17 that Jesus fulfills that promise that God had made. By preaching. Kind of unusual. From that time, Jesus began to preach. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. We don't often think about Jesus preaching, do we? Normally we think of his compassion and his healing and his, his ability to, to kind of verbal jujitsu his way out of tough situations and, and those sad looks that he gives people. I don't think Jesus' movies have helped us much with those sad looks. They show this emotionless man just saying these Proverbs in a British accent, and everybody's in awe. But but Matthew says that he preached. Jesus was a preacher. Look at verse 17 again. From that time, Jesus began to preach. And he called for repentance. It kind of undermines this This sappy Jesus-wasn't-judgy line, doesn't it? He was judgy. He commanded everyone to repent. And we've heard that message before in Matthew's gospel. This was John the Baptist's message, wasn't it? This message is what we call the gospel of the kingdom. or, Or the good news announcement of the kingdom. This message we will see over and over and over again in Matthew's gospel. I have some of these instances up here on the screen for you. We saw it with John. We see it here. And we see it again in this morning's text in verse 23. We see it again in chapter 9. We see it in chapter 10. This was the message that he sends the disciples with. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. In chapter 24, Jesus says this same message, the coming kingdom is going to go out into the whole world. And that's happened. Th- this is the same message that faithful churches all over the world, beginning in 33 AD, all the way to today, are, have preached and are preaching. Right now. This message. So what is this gospel of the kingdom? What is this repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand? Well, we're going to see more and more clues as we go through Matthew's gospel. But the kingdom message is introduced here for us. It's sort of a, a seed for us to see. And That message is the kingdom is coming. And we're supposed to see with open eyes that the king is already here. And as the book of Matthew unfolds, Jesus is going to tell us more and more about this kingdom that's coming. Next week when we look at the the Sermon on the Mount, we're going to see the laws of this heavenly kingdom. Later, we'll see parables that tell us what the kingdom of heaven is like. In Jesus' model prayer for us, what we call the Lord's Prayer, we'll see that we're supposed to pray that our Father's heavenly kingdom would be brought to earth. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. The point is, God's kingdom is from heaven. That's what Jesus wants us to see. It's it's otherworldly. We're already seeing, and we have already seen, that the king is different. He doesn't start his ministry in the capital. He starts it out in the county, in this rural farm country, by a fishing village, away from the areas of of political control and influence. Already this king was born in Bethlehem, not Jerusalem. Jerusalem. And he was visited by shepherds and foreigners. Already he has humbled himself and taken on the role of a servant. Already he has been led into the desert and proven that he's going to be faithful to God and not to the temptations of the world and of Satan. This king is different, isn't he? He's different than any other king that the world has seen. Because this kingdom that he's bringing is different than any other kingdom. And the only way to be brought near this king and enter this kingdom is through hearing his call of repentance and responding to him. Repentance is just admitting this. He says, right now, my allegiance is to another king. But I don't want to worship any other king but Jesus. So I turn from my worship of myself or my status or my parents or my past or my kids or my spouse or my worker or whatever it is, I'm turning from those other kings and to Jesus, the Christ, the true king. He alone will I worship. That's what repentance is. And that's what Jesus demands of us if we're going to follow him repentance and faith in him repentance and faith that's the christian life it's not showing up to church it's not being a good husband or a good wife it's not serving it's not being a caring person all of those are fruits of the faithful christian life but the the heart of the life is repentance and faith Daily, turning away from the things that draw us away from Christ and turning towards Christ. And we come to Christ as a result of His call to us. So let's look at that second section of our text, beginning in verse 18. The call. Now I want to give you some background context to what's happening here as we move into this second section. In Jeremiah chapter 16, the prophet Jeremiah tells us that the Lord will restore Israel. Jeremiah is writing at a time when the northern kingdom, including Zebulun and Naphtali, that they've already been exiled into Babylon. And the destruction of the southern kingdom, or Judah, is looming. And in verses 14 and 16 of Jeremiah chapter 16, this is what the prophet tells us. He says, Therefore, the, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when it shall no longer be said, as the Lord lives who brought us up, brought the people, I'm sorry, let's try that again. As the Lord lives who brought up the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt. That's what they used to say about God, about his faithfulness to them. But this is what they're going to say. As the Lord lives who brought up the people of Israel out of the north country and out of all the countries where he had driven them, for I will bring them back to their own land that I gave to their fathers. See what he's saying? He's saying that God's fame, God's faithfulness in redeeming his people out of Egypt will be eclipsed by the way that he returns them out of exile. This is going to be a greater return than the exodus from Egypt. How we know God is going to be greater than the way the Israelites in the wilderness knew God. And then look how Jeremiah describes that return from exile. That greater exodus that's coming. How is this going to happen? He says in verse 16, Behold, I am sending for many fishers, declares the Lord, and they shall catch them. Who's going to go out and get all of the Lord's people and be a part of their reconciliation back to the kingdom of God? Fishermen. Fishermen are going to do it. Now with that fresh in your mind, with that prophecy on the forefront, on the the table in front of you, let's see how Matthew tells us the story of the first disciples, shall we? In verses 18 through 22, Jesus walks down by the Sea of Galilee to call his first disciples. And he doesn't go to the synagogues to find the gifted teachers. He doesn't go to the market to find the savvy businessmen. He doesn't go to the barracks to find the fighters. He goes to the seashore. Because he wants to find fishermen. And he finds them, doesn't he? Simon Peter and his brother Andrew and then James and his brother John and, and aside from Matthew's own calling, these are the only four disciples that we even learn about. Their calling. Jesus calls fishermen because he's fulfilling prophecy in everything he does. He's revealing himself as the one who is bringing the kingdom. He's undoing the spiritual exile that the people have been oppressed under. Jesus is restoring the kingdom. He's the king, and he's delegating these fishermen to go and gather the citizens that belong to the kingdom. That's what it means for them to be fishers of men. That's just the background of what's happening here. That's the reason why Matthew tells us the story the way that he tells us the story. But I want want you to see something in the foreground too. This is not just prophecy fulfillment. This shows us the character of our Lord. Look at verse 19. This is crucial. In verse 19, Matthew says, And he said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Now, is this an invitation? A suggestion? Maybe? Does Jesus say, Hey guys, I was thinking... Maybe, if, if you know, it's, if it's okay with you, I was thinking maybe you could come with me. He doesn't, does he? It's a command. He says, follow me. And they do. He, he doesn't explain to them what they're going to be doing, other than, I will make you fishers of men. And, and with Jeremiah fresh on our minds, we kind of understand what he's talking about. But imagine uneducated fishermen hearing, I will make you fishers of men. That doesn't help His call. That's not much to go on for them. Think of how little information that these men have to go on. They don't know the extent of who Jesus is yet. It will not be until chapter 16 that Peter comes to the full understanding that Jesus is the Christ. And even then, he still doesn't get it. They don't know that he's going to heal people. They don't know that he's going to cast out demons and challenge every ruler in the land. They don't know that he has come to free them from slavery to sin. They certainly do not know that he's going to die on a cross and be as a resurrected and that they are going to be sent out all over the Roman Empire to plant churches and follow in his suffering. All, all they know is that he's called them. He's commanded them. And look at what they do. They drop what they're doing. Their livelihood, even their means of a livelihood, and they follow Jesus. P- Peter and Andrew left their nets to follow him. James and John leave behind their boats and their father to Follow him. Why? Because he called them. Jesus has authority over men. When a king gives a command, you obey. When Jesus sees these men, he commands them and they obey. There's no belaboring. There's no discussion. There's no hemming and hawing. Jesus calls them and they follow immediately. Verse 20. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. Verse 22. Immediately they left their boats and their father and followed him. There's there's a couple things I want us to see here. One one application for Christians and one for non-Christians. For Christians, we, we learn this. When we... Like these disciples who are first beginning to follow Jesus, when we make that step to follow Jesus, we have not arrived. As we watch these men through the rest of Matthew's gospel, we are going to see enormous blunders. We're going to see missteps. It will be clear to us that they are not model Christ followers they 'll prove themselves to be ignorant, to be arrogant, to be foolish, and to still be very much sinners for for twenty four chapters that 's what we 're going to see of these men. Much of what we hear these four men say or watch them do will be lessons for us for how not to follow Jesus and yet it will be these men who we as Christians as Christ follows. Followers who are most able to identify with. The disciples show us that beginning to follow Jesus and continuing to follow Jesus are two different things. In, In the beginning, obedience is expected. Jesus has authority in our lives. When he commands us as king, we obey. There isn't a reward for starting the race. It is the continuing, the persevering in the faith that is rewarded. That perseverance, that living out our salvation with fear and trembling, Christian, that is what we strive for. We don't long for that first day. We don't long for who we used to be in Christ. We long for who we will be in Christ. But I don't want to overlook the beginning I don't want to look, overlook the beginning and say it's not important at all that first step isn't important to follow Christ is the first act of obedience and there is something to that if you're not a Christian maybe you've gathered with the church because you feel guilty or you think that it's something that good people do and you want to be a good people or you've come because you're curious, but deep down you know you're not a Christ follower. I want you to see something here. Obedience to Christ's call to follow him does not mean that these men have it all together. It just means they were obedient. They took the first step. think I think sometimes when we sense that God is stirring on us that he's beginning to call us to follow Christ our first response is this but I don't I don't know enough about Christianity or the church or churchy stuff or I'm not good enough I'm not as good as those other people and trust me you probably are we think that we have to be all holy and pure just to begin to follow Jesus That is exactly the opposite of the response that these four men have, isn't it? They know very little about Jesus. Very little. And yet they're willing to give up everything to follow Him. Everything. Their lives are nowhere near as holy as you might think. And yet they turn from their lives to follow Him. They knew the one most important thing about Jesus that is required for a Christ follower. Do you know what that is? Jesus Christ has authority over my life. That is all you need to know to begin to follow Christ. There is nothing worth holding on to if it keeps you from following Jesus. To give up everything to follow Jesus is worth it. Well, that brings us to our next section, which begins in verse 23. I hope you still have your Bibles open. Jesus, with these four followers in tow, he continues his kingdom-revealing ministry to all those around him. Look at the two things he's doing. We see that in verse 23. He's teaching and preaching the gospel of the kingdom. And he's healing every disease and affliction among the people. Teaching and preaching the gospel of the kingdom. And healing disease. Something you have to remember here in our first section. Jesus' coming to Galilee fulfilled a promise. Remember that? That promise was that that spiritual exile was ending. The time of darkness where the people were separated from God is over. The king has come. God is with us. In the second section, we saw something similar. God was fulfilling his promise to bring back the people from exile. And then he calls these fishers to assist in that task as the king's fishers. Reeling people into the kingdom of light from the domain of darkness. And now here we begin to see the curse that had been on Israel... The punishment their spiritual exile it's being undone it's beginning to be undone by jesus it's being undone through announcement and it's being undone through these healings these two things are not separate they go hand in hand jesus is proclaiming the inbreaking of the kingdom of heaven and then it's being verified by action following up these healings are sort of cleansing of the land A pushing forward of the kingdom. The demonic forces are being pushed out in the same way that Joshua and the Israelites pushed back the Canaanites when they came into the promised land. For you military folks, this is Jesus' shock and awe campaign. The king is here, and he's announcing his presence in both word and in deed. And Matthew tells us that great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis that's the north and from Jerusalem and Judea that's the south and from beyond the Jordan that's the east the Mediterranean's to the west but in in every direction where there are people they're hearing about this king and his message and what he's doing and announcing his presence to them and they want to see it Jesus is simply doing this. He's continuing to show his kingship, his, his authority. He's proving himself to be authoritative over the unseen spiritual forces that are oppressing his people. He's proving himself to be the Messiah king, the Christ. That's the point of these healings. That's why Matthew tells us about them the way that he does. Now, as we study Matthew together, we're going to see that there are different ways that Matthew tells us about Jesus' healings, about his miracles. Here is the first. Jesus could heal every type of ailment. That's what he's showing showing us today. Look at verse 24. So his fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, those having seizures and paralytics, and he healed them. Physical disease, spiritual affliction, and mental disease. Jesus had authority over all of it. That's the point here. That's that's the reason why Matthew shares these with us. He wants us to see Jesus' authority. But he also does it to show us that Jesus is once again fulfilling prophecy. When we get to Matthew chapter 8, he's going to have one of these sessions where he treats all sorts of ailments and afflictions. And the Matthew is going to share with us that this fulfills prophecy. He says, This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. He took our illnesses and bore our diseases. So, Part of what Jesus is doing is showing what the expected Messiah would do. That's the first type of healings we encounter. These shows of power and prophecy fulfillment. They're real, they happened, and they're meant to show us force, the force of Jesus. The second type of healings that we see in Matthew's gospel are these specific cases. So so next week we'll begin the Sermon on the Mount, and it's going to take us several weeks. When we get to the end of that, we're going to see this leper who's healed all by himself. He's healed. And Jesus is showing us that his ministry goes to the unclean, the outcast, when he heals a leper. And then he'll heal the servant of a Roman centurion. And he's going to show us that he came for the Gentiles by doing that. And then he'll heal Samaritans to show that he came for them. And then he's going to heal a Canaanite woman to show that he even came to save the enemies of Israel. Each of these specific tellings of healings that we have in Matthew's gospel. They show a specific point about who Jesus came for. Jews and Gentiles and the unclean and the outcast. Jesus came to save people from all over the world. From all sorts of backgrounds. It's important though, I want to end with this today. It's important that we understand something about Jesus' healings. This is, don't miss this. This is something that is often misunderstood These events took place for a specific purpose, for a specific people, for a specific time. The kingdom of heaven, God's kingdom, was breaking in to Satan's domain of darkness. And Jesus was using miraculous signs to show the reality of this. But I want to be clear, miraculous signs was not why Jesus came. There are going to be times in the Gospels when we see crowds building up and waiting in line to be healed by Jesus and he doesn't heal them. He leaves town. Luke shows us this very clearly. In Luke chapter 4, Jesus has been ministering to this group of people and then he goes off to pray alone as he's preparing to minister to people in the next town. And while he's out in this desolate place, as Luke calls it, the people sought him and came to him and would have kept him from leaving them, he tells us. What they wanted was more healings and more miracles. And then in the next verse, Luke chapter 4, verse 43, Jesus says, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well. For I was sent for this purpose. sent for what purpose Jesus to preach the good news of the kingdom of God or what Matthew calls the gospel of the kingdom that is why Jesus came to tell us about the breaking in of the kingdom of heaven into earth the light has come into the darkness given the choice between the two preaching the coming kingdom and healing people to show that the kingdom is near Jesus says his preaching is more important his message is more important. Why? Because healings don't lead people to put their faith in Jesus as the Christ. Signs and wonders are not the saving grace of Jesus Christ. Some people believed he was the Christ when they were healed, and some people did not believe that he was the Christ when they were healed. Jesus' saving grace doesn't come with his physical healings. It comes with his word. His saving grace comes when his word is proclaimed. What transforms a heart that is bent on worshiping things other than Jesus Christ is not miraculous signs. What transforms the heart is the word of God. The gospel proclaimed. By the power of the Holy Spirit, the good news of Jesus Christ being announced to someone who is in darkness that's what saves them when a sinner sees the glory of Christ in the message of the gospel when they hear that Jesus is king and lord and they are confronted with their own sin and their own rebellion against their rightful king only then can their heart be transformed only then can they follow him We're going to have a lot of opportunities as a church to talk about Jesus' miracles as we go through Matthew's Gospel. But my hope is that today that we sort of get categories, we get a frame for how to understand what Jesus is doing. He did not, when he was there inaugurating the kingdom, he did not get rid of all cancer everywhere, did he? He did not get rid of all diseases. He did not get rid of all mental disorders. He did not stop the old from getting older. He did not stop children from dying of malnutrition. He certainly could have. But he didn't because that was not his mission. When when he went to his hometown of Nazareth, he didn't heal anyone. He just told them that he was the Christ and then he left when they tried to kill him. When when the Pharisees and Sadducees asked for signs and miracles, he didn't give them any. He only told them this. The most important sign that they would ever see would be the sign of Jonah, his own resurrection from the dead. He didn't heal everyone, but everywhere he went, Jesus proclaimed the message of the coming kingdom because that message is what brings salvation. And Jesus came to bring us salvation, not good health. The miracles that Jesus performed shows us that his kingdom had broken in. Not that it had been consummated, completed. It was not complete yet when Jesus left. The miracles point to a future fulfillment. And that day isn't here yet. Suffering is still very much a part of this age that we live in. And our calling as a church is not to seek to undo all the suffering, it's to suffer with one another. 1 Corinthians 12 26, the Apostle Paul tells us if one member suffers, all suffer together if one member is honored all rejoice together and we do that as we anticipate Christ's return we do that together and we we do that with a hopeful expectation of when all things will be made new What Jesus was doing when he healed all these various ailments is showing us that when he comes back as the king of all creation, all of those ailments, and that's everything, will be totally done away with. He has the authority and the power to raise the dead, to heal the sick, to give sight to the blind, and crush every enemy, and he will The the Jesus we worship, this is the Jesus that reigns as king over our church. An outpost of his coming kingdom. And he will one day reign over all creation. Church, this is our God. Let's glorify him with our lives. Let's pray.